You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues in a unique spiritual perspective based on the principles of the Baha'i Faith. For information on the Baha'i Faith itself, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I recorded a conversation with Mrs. Mabel Garris, a Baha'i from Amherst, who has authored the Uncle Wiggly series of books, which she inherited from her father-in-law, the original creator of the series, Mr. Howard Garris. Mabel also represented the United States Baha'i community at the United Nations as its non-governmental organization representative. I started the conversation by asking Mabel where she grew up. I grew up in Connecticut.
turning point for you to... That was the turning point. We'll return to more conversation with Mabel after we take a break. You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. And this is A Baha'i Perspective. Responsibility. This is something I have forever struggled with. Whether it be doing my chores as a child, following through with my commitments, paying bills on time, or even just making simple choices. But the more I've strived and learned to act responsibly, the more trustworthy I've become, the more dependable I've become, and most importantly, the more aligned with God I feel. Tolerance is a good place for me to start. If I can be tolerant of a situation first, then I get to follow it through with other virtues like love and patience and kindness um, that support my act of being tolerant. Well, courage to me is the way to get through fears and troubles. When I'm scared, I always tell my parents how I feel with confidence and bravery. They help me work out my problems. After that, I feel more courageous. You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, and a Baha'i Perspective. Welcome back. I'm Warren Odestulet, your host. Today we're playing a recorded conversation I had with Mabel Garris, an author and former representative to the UN for the United States Baha'i Community Non-Governmental Organization. She lives in Amherst. I asked Mabel what led her to becoming an author. I was always fascinated by words and writing. My father was a a man of, uh, not a man of letters, he was very bright and uh, used to write poetry, but I never saw him without a book. He was always reading something. The discipline in our family would not be so much about chewing gum, but about whether you use the right word in the right place in the right manner. If we didn't, he would say, now lass, you know better than that. My father was British, so was my mother. You know better than that, and you can leave the table and think about it, and then you can come back when you were. Uh, so, uh, grammar, and I found that in later years I was always saying, oh, it isn't that, it's this. <laughs> I thought this will put me at the bottom of the popularity list. <laughs> so, I would lynch when people would say like when they should have said as, though, or uh, as if, and still do that. I have sent letters in to William Sapphire in the New York Times on proper English, and in one of his columns he made three errors, so I wrote to him. <laughs> Starting off, uneasy is the head that wears the crown. <laughs> And so I never heard back from him. I thought, well, so much for that. And then I did. One day I got a phone call, and they were doing another Sapphire book and wanted to know if they could include my corrections to him. So there were three in one column, so you can see what a persistent little reader I was on the verge of ending a few friendships. So... uh, Even with my daughter, who is a writer and, and, and is married to a writer, when the children used incorrect language, I would tell them and say, no, no, Alex, that should be. And she said, oh, mother. <laughs> so uh, let's put up with what we can. <laughs> and so uh, I thought, well, if they know, then they'll know what to say or do. If they don't do it, okay, but at least they have this knowledge in hand. So I was a real terror, and I've cut that way, way, way down. Occasionally I'll say it is uh, this, if you don't mind my saying so. And then when I met Roger, I was trying to write short stories, which I never did sell. And I was married to a writer. Roger earned his living by writing. 
he was the son of Howard Garris and Lillian Garris. And Howard Garris is the author of the Tom Swift books, which I think are under the name of Victor Appleton. They were all put out by the Stratemeyer Syndicate. He wrote so many books that I can't even remember. The Buddy books. He wrote Buster Brown and his sister Sue. He wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of books. And then my mother-in-law was the originator of the Bobsy Twins. Melody Lane mystery series, Buddy, and the, all of these were, were series of books which were all put out during early years, well I guess the 30s, 20s, 30s in that area. And then Roger wrote, so when he did some of the series books, you know, it seemed like a very natural place for me to be. And then I dedicated myself to just keeping things quiet for Roger so he could write and taking care of the children and the family and the large house and doing all that. And then Howard Garris, when he was living with us, asked to see me one day in his room, library. So I went in and he said, Mabby, I would like you to continue the Uncle Wiggly when I'm no longer able to. And I said, no, that should be Roger, he's your son. No, Roger has his own writing. I want you. No, it should be Cleo, who was Roger's sister. I thought it should be an immediate member of the family. He said, no, you're more my daughter than anybody else. And so he said, and you understand me, and you understand Uncle Wiggily. So I want you to carry on for me. So that was quite a an unsettling thing for me. Roger wasn't well at the time and uh, eventually became quite ill and uh, as I had said earlier passed away at that particular time and then I did had a contract with a publisher in England and I did about six books of Uncle Wiggly Story Stories originals and then in all there were about six and three were books of original stories my stories and then edited stories of Howard Garris and then I did an Uncle Wiggly Ballet for the Amherst Ballet Theatre Company here in town, in Amherst. And Now when you say you did a ballet, what... I wrote the script for an Uncle Wiggly Ballet, and it was Uncle Wiggly in the Duck Pond. I think of ballet as dancing and music. Mm -hmm. What part of that did you create? I created the story. We went through lots of Uncle Wiggly books, and we couldn't find anything that lent itself to a theme that would work with ballet dancers. and So when I was at United Nations, I was invited to speak several times. And one time I was invited to speak on UN Day up in Vermont. I was asked to speak to the junior high students and then the high school students. And I said, fine. A friend of mine said, but when you're out, who had invited me, Carolyn Cruikshank, said when you're up here you could tell an Uncle Wiggly story to the children. On the way up it was about a three-hour drive and on the way up I thought now what will I say to children about Uncle Wiggly? So I on the way I got a story going and I called it Uncle Wiggly in the Duck Pond although I don't think I had a title for it then. But in the Baha'i Faith one of the tenets of faith is to look upon everyone equally. You are to get rid of your prejudices. And of course, this is not easy. We grow up in a certain culture with parents with very strong ideas. I had uh, parents with very strong ideas and, and uh, very limited, it seems to me, in their long-range thinking about society. It was really the here and now, and they are not really of us, and they, you know, it was this kind of put down, always polite to people, but not included and ever, and, and they were really lesser beings in many cases. So it was a thriving prejudice that I grew up, a prejudicial society that I grew up in. So as a Baha'i, one of the things is to rid oneself of prejudice. And this isn't always easy. You have to really work on it. So it seemed to me that taking that basis for a story, it would be helpful to young children. So what I did was to get the Wibblewobble family, which are the ducks 
the duck family. They always swam in a certain pond. And so Uncle Wiggily is out and he's walking, hopping in the woods and then he comes, the children, group of children come along and they say, oh Uncle Wiggily, we've been looking for you. Uncle Wiggily is the solver of problems. And Lulu and Jimmy Wibblewobble can't go back to their uh, their pond because the skillery scallery alligator has taken it and they won't let them in. So Uncle Wiggily then confers with them, they put their heads together and then they all go off in different directions and he said now we'll meet back here at a certain time and so then Uncle Wiggily goes uh, off with his two, with his niece and nephew Sammy and Susie Littledale and who were the little rabbit children they go back and they tell Nurse Jane Fuzzy Wuzzy, who is the uh, muskrat lady housekeeper, what their what the plan is. So she gets very busy and they get busy and they go out to the woodshop with Uncle Wiggily. They're working away and finally Nurse Jane comes out and she has a great big cake. Susie and Sammy Littletail have both made something or other which turn out to be toothbrush big toothbrushes and Uncle Wiggily has made something else I forget what now but they all go back and they meet the other children and the children have gotten some present for the skillery scallery alligator so then they go back to the to the pond and there's skillery scallery alligator taking over and so the, he then says uh, they come sort of moving tentatively up towards the edge of the pond they find that here is Gilroy's gallery alligator and he yes get back from here I don't want anyone around here and the children go back and Uncle Wiggily sues them and says go ahead go ahead so one by one they go up and they leave a present for the Skillery's gallery alligator and uh, he is saying go away go away and uh, they are not paying any attention to that because Uncle Wiggily is urging them forward. So they deposit their gifts. Then the big thing, Nurse Jane Fuzzy Wuzzy comes with the great big cake. So they all sing, I may have forgotten an essential thing, that he said it was his birthday and he was taking the pond for his birthday. Nurse Jane Fuzzy Wuzzy has the big cake they all have can they have candles on it and they bring it towards the skillery scallery alligator and they all sing and then of course the audience all sings happy birthday to you happy birthday to you happy birthday dear skillery scallery alligator happy birthday to you well he just breaks down he has crocodile tears coming down his alligator face because then he says, oh, oh, I'll go away. He said, nobody had ever given me a birthday cake before. I've never had a birthday party. I'll go away and I won't trouble you anymore. And they say, no, no, you must stay. You stay, and Uncle Wiggily says, you stay and we'll find out how alligators live and they and they will find you will find out how ducks and uh, the other residents of the area live and then we will all get to know each other better well all right he decides to give in but only if you'll sing that song again so of course everybody and in the audience is this was later made into the ballet and so the whole university was filled with people all singing ha happy birthday to Uncle Wiggily, I mean to Skillery Scallery Alligator. And it was great fun. Oh, so uh, that's the story of the ballet. It transferred very nicely to, to the dancers and the ballet. They could, and we had a wonderful um, person, somebody who was uh, connected with the Metropolitan Metropolitan Opera, and they did costumes for them. And when Otrey's Donahue would, had taken the group out, and I think it was Scotland, and, and this man was there, and he said, I'd like to design the costumes for the ballet. So we had this great thing, and then Karen Tarlow, who is 
she was getting her doctorate in music and she did an original score. Mm. So it all worked out very well. What other things have you offered? I did several books of Uncle Wiggily. Mm -hmm. They were published in England. And uh, then I did the Uncle Wiggily Ballet. And, and then there was the Uncle Wiggily game that Howard Garris had started that way back, I think before I was born. And that goes back a long way. And Milton Bradley published it. And so that came to me. And it's still going. It's now uh, published by uh, Winning Moves in, uh, in in Massachusetts. Anyway, it's still on the on uh, available. When was the last time you wrote an Uncle Wiggly series? Quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. and, and why did you stop? Well, because the demand had stopped. You know, mm. the world has changed. Mm. Although there is the uh, uh, the possibility now of a uh, of a uh, movie. Now, you said that your son-in-law is... Uh My son-in-law is Arthur Copet, who is a playwright. He won his first prize when he was an undergraduate at Harvard, and, and he wrote, Oh, Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet, and I'm Feeling So Sad, which went on to win prize after prize after prize and got him uh, really uh, launched in the theater mm -hmm. and then he, uh, he he did other mm -hmm. other things. Now working with the uh, writers, he teaches I think at Princeton, I know he was teaching at Princeton last year and I think at in New York and is has been spending a lot of time doing a, uh, a big, a, an epic sort of uh, thing. Okay. Discovery of America, something like that, so that it's a large piece. Mm. Tell me about your effort to write the book Martha Root. Oh, Martha Root. Martha, if anyone doesn't know, they should find out about Martha. I was asked if I would write this, and I knew very little about her. First of all, I was asked to do a, uh, a short piece, not seven pages. And this is such a woman. I was completely captivated, bowled over by her, and I still am, even though the book is now, and I can't believe it, it came out almost 20 years ago. Still asked to speak about it, about Martha. She was a, a, a journalist in Pittsburgh and introduced the automobile. She was born in 1883 and she died in 1938. She was a well-known newspaper person and used to cover the automobiles and went uh, to Europe covering the races there and was uh, actually took a ride in an experimental auto by a man named Otto Berg and they went all over France and ended in Versailles, I believe. He wanted to see if he could get it up to 50 miles an hour. Now that doesn't sound much today, but in those days the average speed of a car was 8 to 11 miles an hour. In the book there are some really interesting stories of Martha traveling from uh, Pittsburgh up to Cambridge Springs in Pennsylvania. Uh, the tortures that one underwent going in a car. Tires didn't hold up. The roads were not ready for them. And then she began to travel. And her travels were stupendous. And she was a woman alone and she went all over the world, pretty much. She didn't go to Russia, and she didn't go to a lot of the African countries that we know of now, but she was in Africa, and she was in Asia, in Germany, and at one point she went to every single university in Germany. She would get up at the wee hours of the morning and would be on a train going in standing very often and she was fragile, she was ill. She would just stand there and ride all the way in and always took whatever was cheapest. She went to China and Japan. She always had problems in Japan. Something always happened and, and she would run up against the law <laughs> here and there because she would make a statement and they didn't like it. And so um, she had some interesting experiences. She went to India, uh, she was there three times, and Australia, and uh, New Zealand, Tasmania, then eventually to uh, Israel, Turkey, 
she had trouble getting in and out, had very little money, and had to pay like a visa tax to go in, and then she was ready to leave and she had to pay a visa tax to get out. And this was the first time that had happened. She was an announcer of the religion to the heads of state. She notified Queen Maria of Romania, this was in the 20s and, and 30s, and Queen Marie met with her. And here was this little woman from, from Cambridge Springs, Pennsylvania, coming up to meet Queen Marie of Romania, the beautiful, exotic, uh, talented, charming head of, uh, head of a country. Uh, Queen Marie was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria of England and the granddaughter of the Tsar of Russia, both of whom had received tablets from Baha'u'llah when he was a prisoner in Adrianople. Both of them, Queen Marie was the only one who actually responded. I mean, Queen Victoria. Her empire was the only one to withstand the ravages of time. It's still an empire. Martha saw all these people met them. She didn't meet the Tsar of Russia, but did meet the King Haakon of Norway, one after the other. She was an Esperantist. Esperanto, you know, was uh, started by Professor Ludwig Zamenhof, who was a Polish professor and scholar. Esperanto means one who hopes. Uh, professor uh, Zamenhof had felt that after World War I, that language was a barrier and we couldn't truly communicate with each other because we had these other languages and only a smattering of English which came uh, closest to a universal language. And one of the, what shall we call it, ideas of Baha'u'llah, the world must have a universal language so that wherever one goes they can travel throughout countries and will have a common language. But this does not mean giving up one's own language. It will be a common language in addition to the, the language of the country. So Martha became a great Esperantist and studied in Greece. She had an Esperanto column. When she would travel, the uh, Esperantist would meet her at the station with their, I think they had green flags, which stood for the Esperanto. They really helped her with her in her travels greatly. Sounds like this was a big endeavor. It was a very big endeavor. I thought, after I had read something when I was supposed to do an article on it, I thought, gosh, this is is uh, quite a woman. She's done a lot of things. Mm. And I couldn't keep the article into seven pages. So they said, well, for Martha Root, we'll allow you nine. And so I did spill over into ten. But in the process of doing that article, I became acquainted with the, with the greatness of her work. And even then, I was only touching on it, just touching on it. Mm. She was extraordinary and remarkable. She was plagued with cancer from her early days, and she hated doctors, or, or dreaded doctors, I guess I should say, so she wouldn't go to a doctor. So she had cancer from an early, early age. That was not diagnosed. It doesn't come out in the book until the very last pages when a doctor in Hawaii, where she is actually carried off a ship as she's coming from India. She couldn't stand, she couldn't sit down. She was in such terrible pain and she was writing all these articles and standing up with her typewriter, her uh, Oliver Smith typewriter there on the bureau and, and she stood up to type. She was in excruciating pain and was carried off the ship in Hawaii. She was there for quite a while. The response to having to take care of her in her illness was, how is it that we are so privileged to be able to have Martha at this time? Mm -hmm. And we know she doesn't belong to us, she belongs to the world. Mm -hmm. So this was the greatness of Martha. Yeah. We'll return to the conclusion of my conversation with Mabel after this short break. You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. 
You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, and a Baha'i Perspective. Welcome back. I'm Warren Odestulet, your host. Today we're playing a recorded conversation I had with Mabel Garris, an author and former representative to the UN for the United States Baha'i Community Non-Governmental Organization. She lives in Amherst. I asked Mabel one more question, and that was, what would her life have been like if she had not become a Baha'i? No, I can't. I've often thought, how would I live in this world if I hadn't found the Baha'i faith? And I don't know what I would do mm. uh, with the world as it is. You know, Baha'i was transforming, certainly transforming of character as well as one's own views. I was interested in politics to a certain degree. I don't mean ever entering them, but in the running the country, so pay attention to who's being elected and that sort of thing. I would never have gone into it, but I was with the League of Women Voters, and I was president for a time of the Amherst. The Amherst was a very vital league uh, because we had Lucy Benson here, uh, who became the national president of the league because there were so many colleges, it was a very upscale thinking group. So I was there. I was very soon made the representative at the UN, as you said earlier. So that took time. I had to go down to New York every week. I drove or took the train. We'd drive sometimes to New Haven and take the train and have to be in New York by 10 o'clock for the uh, once a week. And then I did go to many places speaking, and not only in the country, but out of the country. And so I spoke in Persia, went to Iran, spoke there. That was when I was a representative at the UN. Spoke to the young people as well. Had some (laughs) very interesting experiences there, which I won't go into, but I was new in many things, and and there were some interesting things that happened. You know, members of the Baha'i faith are persecuted in Iran and in some of the other countries, and they are jailed. There was a period when Ayatollah Khomeini came in when they were jailed by the thousands. Many of them were then let out, but uh, some were doctors, and they would jail doctors because then they, and keep them in there because the doctors would then be assigned to take care of all of the Iranians that had jailed them. So they were getting their doctoral services by means of jailing Baha'i doctors, and there was no way for them to get out. And they were persecuted, they were tortured, men and women, by the hundreds and hundreds. There was one friend I had here who had just come over from having been a Baha'i in Africa and came over here, and she had 15 to 20 members of her family, aunts and uncles, uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, They were all in jail. Some of them were let out and others were just kept on and on and on and and she was a wreck. Baha'is are very well thought of at the UN because when you get a statement from the United Nations regarding some aspect of of our society, it might be the year of, of women or birth control or any of those, and there are statements put out These statements are a composite of those, not necessarily a composite, but they are made up of opinions and written statements by the representatives, and almost always they use the Baha'i statements, almost entirely, uh, direction. One thing I found interesting, we had a um, a Baha'i, Dr. Ugo Giacchieri from Italy. When they were writing the document of the uh, Declaration of Human Rights, this was written almost entirely, the, the published version now is almost entirely the uh, statement that was written on behalf of the Baha'is by Dr. Ugo Giacchieri, so that what we have as the statement of human rights is a Baha'i statement of human rights. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Mabel Garris, 
who's an author and former representative to the UN for the Baha'is of the United States, and she resides in Amherst. If you want specific information on the Baha'i faith itself, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you will join us next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Discrimination of any race is a flagrant violation. The glory of God has a remedy for this dispensation. Black love, could you be mine? Black love, pupil love. People get ready Or a new day has come You better be patient with each other And realize force to overcome The discrimination of any race Is a flagrant violation Glory of God has a remedy for this dispensation. Black love, would you be mine? Black love, pupil of the eye. Black love, He may graciously make you the sign. Black love, please be mine. Black love.
of starboard bow Feel the spirit rising Hear the mighty shout Oh, watch the whole creation Turning inside out He's making his will made at the table Talking about an end to war We need more than chess moves We gotta open up the door oh, And let a little sunlight Shine on each end Listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. <laughs> 